As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Check the backseat. Check the backseat. Hi, come here. Check the backseat. Gets in your head, right? Good, because every year dozens of children are forgotten in the backseat of a car by a parent or caregiver. All never thought it could happen to them, but with changes in routines, distractions, or a sleeping child, it can happen to anyone. Parked cars get hot fast and can be deadly, so get it in your head. Check the backseat. A message from NHTSA and the Ad Council. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast hosts Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everyone. This is Molly and Matt, and we're the hosts of Grown Up Stuff How to Adult, a podcast from Ruby Studio and iHeart Podcasts. It's a show dedicated to helping you figure out the trickiest parts of adulting. Like how to start planning for retirement, creating a healthy skincare routine, understanding when and how much to tip someone, and so much more. Let's learn about all of it and then some. Listen to Grown Up Stuff How to Adult on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search Grown Up Stuff. Grown Up Stuff. Hi, I'm Ethan Nadelman, and this is Psychoactive, a production of iHeart Radio and Protozoa Pictures. Psychoactive is the show where we talk about all things drugs. But any views expressed here do not represent those of iHeartMedia, Protozoa Pictures, or their executives and employees. Indeed, as an inveterate contrarian, I can tell you they may not even represent my own. And nothing contained in this show should be used as medical advice or encouragement to use any type of drug. Hello, psychoactive listeners. You know, one of the subjects that gets asked about often by our listeners is the plant, the drug called Kratom or Kratom. And so I thought we'd do an episode on that. I'm curious. I don't know a hell of a lot about it. And so I was looking around for who to have on. And one of the names that just pops up everywhere, whose name is on, you know, probably half or more of the articles you see being published in the academic literature about Kratom, is Kirsten Smith. And she's now a postdoctoral fellow at NIDA, the National Institute on Drug Abuse. And so I asked her to join us. So, you know, Kirsten, thanks very much for coming on Psychoactive. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Well, first of all, the issue of Kratom or Kratom, or what do we call it? What's your take on that? I go with the people. So, (laughs) so long as most people using it say Kratom, I'm going to pronounce it Kratom. And when we get a sea change of people who call it Kratom, I'll, I'll switch to the camp begrudgingly. Okay, well, well, I mean, I'll tell you. So, so I'll I'll try with kratom. I may revert to kratom. And actually, I was having dinner uh, a couple months ago in London with a few friends of mine. One is Anne Fordham, uh, who heads IDPC, the International Drug Policy Consortium, and who's half Thai. And she said, "Ethan, forget kratom, kratom. It's kratom. That's what people call it in Thailand." Um, so let me just start by saying, obviously, this is another one of these plants, you know, like coca, like cot, right, that is growing, that has been growing outside the United States, in this case, in um, Southeast Asia, right, for Thailand, Malaysia, Indonesia, I think Myanmar, Papua New Guinea, um, that's been indigenous there. And what can you tell us? I mean, is this something that goes back thousands of years or just 100 or 200 years? Fill us in on that. Yeah, it's a really interesting story because when Kratom appeared in the United States, people were like, oh, this is a novel substance. And, you know, to the United States, it's new. 
you know, that's kind of like ethnocentric and <laughs> relatively speaking, it's not new um, in other places. So you're correct. Um, Southeast Asia is where it's indigenous to. We do know that at least in the early 1900s, there were some, you know, case reports of uh, kratom use uh, by Westerners of people, you know, indigenous to those regions that you described, using it in chewing the leaves primarily or as a tea or beverage. So we can say for sure it's been documented for 100 years, but as far as how it's been traditionally used, it's you know not dissimilar to many other botanicals that are you know are indigenous to, to regions. So pain-killing effects, trying to reduce fevers, but also, and this has been well documented as well, being used as kind of a stimulant for um, people who are doing pretty harsh labor out in fields. And oftentimes in that sense, it's chewed. But, you know, it can be prepared with fresh leaves and, and juice or tea. So mm-hmm. the reasons for use are kind of like any psychoactive substance or botanical in that people are using it in, in those areas to self-treat medical symptoms um, and substance use uh, disorders. So people who have been addicted to heroin, methamphetamine uh, and alcohol, those are the three we've seen most often in um, Asia where Kratom has been used to basically substitute those harsher drugs. In the region there, if you're looking at who's using it there in Southeast Asia, is it like working class people? Is it college students? Is it young people? Is it the elderly? I can speak to the fact that it is used far more often by males than females, and that the average age of use initiation is typically older than other substances like nicotine or alcohol or heroin or methamphetamine. And it seems to be that a lot more people in rural areas are using it. But as far as any sort of ethno, you know, demographic breakdown, I can't speak to right, that. Right, right. And so now when we look at the kratom that's being sold in the U.S., is that basically being imported from these countries in Southeast Asia? Primarily, yes. So that's the short answer. Most people, and this has been borne out in the majority of the survey data, most Kratom coming into the United States is from larger vendors that have changed over time. We have some entities that are are larger than others, a lot of mid-level players. So people who I would say, you know, they do almost exclusively online sales. They get it from their connection in Southeast Asia, and then they package it and promote it and sell it here in the United States, either direct to consumer sales on the internet or through wholesaling to shops that are then retail shops, so gas stations, head shops, tobacco, smoke shops, vape stores. And I I expect to see it in other types of stores as well in the future. Well, I mean, Kirsten, I have to tell you, so in anticipation of your being on Psychoactive, uh, what I did right before the show was I walked around the corner where a new Kratom CBD shop just opened on like 71st and Amsterdam, just a five minute walk from my apartment. And I bought some capsules and a chocolate bar and a tea. And so while we're having this conversation, I'm drinking some Kratom tea. So I'm gonna see if it has any effect on me by the end of the show. But uh, you know, I have to say it doesn't taste that good. Um, it's, oh, it's dank. It's it's dank, but not in a good way. Like dank is usually I usually say that's dank in a good way. This is dank in a not as palatable way. It is very pungent, is how I like to describe. If you break those capsules open and smell the raw plant matter, it's um, kind of funky. Yeah, and I purposely didn't buy the straight out powder because I figured with a capsule you can barely taste it. Here we don't have fresh leaves, so any tea is going to be with dry leaves. Or it's going to be already packaged in some kind of energy shot looking extract or juice like thing. But over there, they can actually brew the fresh leaves. We don't have people growing kratom trees in the United States in their backyard in mass. I've heard some anecdotes of a few people trying to grow kratom trees. And even if they do, it doesn't mean that they're going to get ones that have leaves that are metrogenine bearing. Um, at first, which I should say that's the alkaloid that has a lot of um, of the known psychoactive activity. But as far as the importing itself, I mean, by the time it gets to the United States, who knows what's going on? Because we have all of these different vendors, and then they're going to be handling it in the ways that get to consumers differentially. So we have some vendors who might be 
trying to just take one or two alkaloids and put it into an extract. Or oftentimes what you'll see if you go online, especially are, are the packets of pulverized plant matter or capsules that have the plant matter in it. I think part of this is a function of just how Americans probably want to consume their their kratom. That's not to say people don't consume it by brewing tea. I know I've seen people drink kratom tea. There are there are bars that are selling freshly made tea, but I think a lot of other people just want to have the convenience of some kind of powder or capsule or something like that. Well, let me ask you a few questions about that. So, so for you've mentioned mitragynine, I think that's the pronunciation, um, a number of times, right? And it sounds to me that like there's dozens of alkaloids in kratom that mitragynine is the key one. And the way I imagine it is like, it, you know, mitragynine is to kratom more or less what THC is to cannabis or nicotine is to tobacco um, in the sense that it's the dominant variable in this stuff. It's the principal psychoactive one, but that there are these other alkaloids that, you know, color the picture a bit. I is that accurate? Um, or would you change what I said? We don't know yet, right? Well, like, so it seems like, okay, here's this leaf, the percentage of alkaloid content, more of it is metrogenine, right? But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's doing all the heavy lifting. So 7-hydroxy um, metrogenine is also, it's a very small amount that is in leaves and it's a metabolite of metrogenine, but it does heavy lifting, right? So just because there's more of something doesn't necessarily mean it is the dominant thing. I like to use the, the kind of metaphor that Christopher McCurdy, my colleague at Florida, has said in some of his talks, which I think is very succinct and, and elegant, which is to say that this leaf is kind of like a symphony, right? So we have the symphony with all of these different instruments playing different notes. We know from the preclinical, and when I say that, I just mean the animal, non-human animal work, how some of these act in isolation. So that doesn't translate to a lot of human use because most people are taking things that probably have more than one alkaloid. That's changing a bit, but at least in the short time it's been in the US, people have been taking more diversified products than more isolated products in terms of the alkaloid content. So we don't know, for instance, maybe if we only take metrogenine and you know give some purified form to humans, how that is going to produce an effect when in reality, it's always been mixed with something, right? And if we want to understand these alkaloids, it's important to look at them in isolation, but also to look at them in combination. And we really don't have, clearly with human studies, we don't have any of that. But with the animals, we, we do see that mitragynine has very specific effects at certain doses in certain species in certain routes of administration. But we know that there's four alkaloids that act as seemingly partial agonists at mu opioid receptors. However, there are at least two of these alkaloids, plus several others, act at uh, delta, kappa, opioid receptors, as well as mu opioid receptors, as well as serotonin, dopamine, adrenergic. So there is a lot going on with this leaf. And to Chris's metaphor, you know, we don't know the note or the tenor or the tune or the tempo of all of these different instruments yet, um, let alone how they work in concert. And I think that, that that's where we, we have a lot of work to do. Right. Well, now that what I'm seeing is that a fair bit about what we know or think we know is actually coming from surveys. And then I saw, you know, there's that website, Erowid, E-R-O-W-I-D, mm -hmm. which is a spectacular website for people sharing information about, you know, their experience of various psychoactive substances. So it seems like there's a growing amount of survey stuff out there. Can you sum up the state of knowledge or awareness from these surveys to date or in terms of the surveys you're working on? Is there stuff that you can share? Yeah, you're correct. We've gathered data that suggests, okay, yes, there's a self-treatment narrative people are absolutely using to decrease their anxiety, to decrease their depression symptoms, either in combination with medically prescribed drugs or because they don't want to take certain prescribed drugs because they couldn't tolerate them. And um, also because they you know, tried buprenorphine, tried methadone, or tried to get off alcohol, tried to stop using many different drugs, and they found Kratom. And it seemed to be what was a, a bridge out of a relationship with drugs that they didn't like, and that it, for many people, was very effective, and for other people, it was not as effective. And clearly, we don't have 
controlled studies, but I do think it's important to listen to what people are saying. And so one of the things we did after I came to NIDA is just look at Reddit data and what people are talking about in these Kratom subreddits. I have to say it was really refreshing to read it after having only looked at survey data that was being published or only looking at case reports, which I have to say the case reports are very valuable. And if you do a search for case reports related to Kratom, you need to really be cautious in how you read those case reports because they're often written by people who don't know anything about Kratom. So I will save you that diatribe other than to say that the case reports have been a great source of information, but they're also a very narrow, narrow viewpoint and incomplete picture. So after digging around in case reports and the survey data, reading what people actually have to say reminded me of like, you know, what, why do I even care about this? Which is that people are really trying to have a relationship with the substance that improves their life. I mean, that's that's kind of the takeaway in a very crude form. And, it, you know, it, it informed, quite frankly, the Reddit findings informed how I wrote some of the questions for the survey that we did shortly thereafter, which we're in the process of getting out into papers right now. You've said that you yourself have not been much of a Kratom consumer, but you've been open about the fact, and this makes you a little bit unusual at NIDA and in the research world. My understanding is that you yourself went through a period when you were younger of, you know, being in trouble and maybe being dependent upon heroin and, and what have you. I wonder if you could just share your story there. I mean, how did that come about and how long were you involved in a problematic relationship with heroin or other legal drugs? And how did you get out of it? You know, it's something I didn't talk about a lot when I was younger. It's it's very inelegant how I refer to myself because I'm just like, well, I'm a person who used to inject heroin every day and was addicted to it, but I don't do the 12-step stuff, though I've, I've tried it. I grew up in a fairly averagely dysfunctional, eccentric house. I'm from Knoxville, Tennessee. And so it was just a normal college town. And, you know, I, I didn't have any trauma as a child beyond normal American trauma. And just I, I was a very entitled kind of lower middle class suburban white kid. And I I was very curious. And even when I was really young, I knew I wanted to inject heroin because I saw it in Pulp Fiction and it looked really, really, really fun. And I was like, I'm going to do that one day. And in Knoxville, it's not like the heroin capital of the world. It never has been. So Knoxville, though it's technically in central Appalachia, it's still very much a college suburban kind of town. And so it's like cannabis, cocaine, pills, psychedelics, alcohol. So I did the cannabis, you know, tried cocaine, tried psychedelics, of course, alcohol, things like that. And then prescription opioids, right? So it was morphine. I was 16 years old and... Someone injected me with morphine. And then when I was 17, that's when Oxycontin made its real debut and Oxycontin became much more widely available. And so that came first and then heroin came after. It started off social and recreational and all of this stuff. I was a server full-time, went to school at community college, but like just wasn't excelling. You know, I was just, I wasn't on the street. I was, I guess by some standards, I was a highly functioning addicted person. By other standards, I was not meeting the expectations of someone with my upbringing and, you know, socioeconomic status. And I was forced into rehab when I was 19. I absolutely didn't want to go. And that was a 28-day inpatient. And then after that, I just continued about my business and just, you know, hid it from my family better. So I guess age 22, 23 is when my boyfriend at the time and I were, we still had jobs, but we were absolutely ready to stop. And I told my family, I want to go to treatment again. And of course, my stepdad calls his insurance company. And oh, no, you know, this is before the Patient Protection Affordable Care Act. Because you have already been to rehab one time, you don't get to go again. So I detoxed at my parents' house and they kind of like guarded me and then after I left and I went back to my apartment, everything went back to how it was. And I couldn't get into a residential program, which is what I really needed and wanted. And so we kept using. And then we, I mean, this is not a secret. I'll just go ahead and say it. We robbed two banks and went to federal prison. And that is how I got sober. I got prison instead of buprenorphine. And that's how it ended for me or how it changed, I should say. 
I will say that, you know, even now, and I've done work assessing programs that are available to incarcerated people, the lack of treatment, humane treatment that is informed, you know, informed consent and treatment options is still utterly appalling and almost borders on a human rights abuse issue. And I'm not saying we shouldn't have consequences for people who do illegal things that are a menace to society, right? Like I robbed a bit. It's not like I was innocent. So I needed some sort of intervention or punishment, call it what you will. But the degree to which the facilities that people are warehoused in lack actual programs to help them is really amazing. It's just amazing. So I, I would say that, yeah, I am extremely fortunate, but I also did not go to like summer camp either. It was really not a treatment oriented place, to say the least. So, I mean, would you say that your past experience with drugs and incarceration impacted who you are as a researcher and the work you're doing today? The answer to that is yes and no. So on the one hand, I am very much a um, hard scientist. And, you know, we need objective measures. We need validated instruments. We need validity of every kind. Insert anything, and I'm pretty much on board. That said, I think because of my past and also because of my training in social science and social work, I am oriented also to and more open and receptive to the fact that we need these objective measures. We need basic science. We need all of this very hard science. However, if you don't talk to a person who uses drugs, whether it's you know a psychoactive plant like Kratom or cocaine or heroin or anything, you really are missing the bigger picture and you're missing a big part of what will help you inform all of those validated instruments and the types of research questions you ask, the types of trials you do. I wouldn't even be here had it not been for interacting with people in the real world uh, who use drugs, right? So it's, it's, you need both. And I think that preclinical scientists and even clinical researchers would do well to have conversations with people and qualitative work. The study that we're going to be doing is very rigorous. It has many objective measures, but if you don't have subjective measures as an outcome variable or as part of the data collection process, then you have an incomplete picture. And, you know, we're going to be doing qualitative work as well in addition to assaying Kratom products. So you need everything. And if you think you don't, then you're misguided, I hate to say. Well, you know, I, of course, I think I first heard about you. I had just been a guest a few months back on a podcast that's done, hosted by Kratom Science, an organization that's very committed to trying to put out accurate information about this. And the podcast host had recommended you as a good guest for Psychoactive. But when I was, he then sent me a, a list of a survey they had done. And, you know, just scrolling through the reports and seeing some of the other stuff of these surveys, you see people, you know, oftentimes writing back with these remarkable, you know, how it helped them get off. You put a heroin habit behind them or helped them when they relapsed to sort of cut that relapse off and get better or it helped with withdrawal or it helped them dealing with a very serious pain condition where other opioids or other sorts of things weren't working, or maybe sometimes anxiety or depression. It's pretty overwhelming when you hear people describe how transformative this has been and how helpful it's been. Now, you also find people saying, this is boring, and it did absolutely nothing for me, and I'm utterly unimpressed. And that's fine. But for those that it has been helpful for during a time when we have very poor treatment options for people... And um, a lot of people are very unsatisfied with their treatment options. And there's a lot of stigma, of course, in getting uh, treatment for substance use disorder or chronic pain even is highly undertreated and underdiagnosed. So you have people who are sometimes desperate and they find Kratom and it seems to be what they've been looking for. And it's so true to just many substances, which is that you know something can be beneficial, but also have some side effects. And a lot of the people who, you know, we read the accounts of, they seem to say, okay, I take this every day. It's part of my life. And I feel like I need to take it. And I know that if I don't stop taking it, I'm going to not feel great. I'm probably going to have some withdrawal symptoms. But by and large, the withdrawal symptoms from Kratom seem to be, well, no, they don't seem to be. They're mild to moderate. So I would say that 
there, there are estimates of how many people are using Kratom or have used Kratom or are daily regular users. I don't think we really know, but we do know that the sales in the industry is growing rapidly, if that's an indication. We'll be talking more after we hear this ad. My simple solution to the problem was remove people from the scene and help them feel safer. In response to attacks against Asian Americans, Maddie Park raised over $250,000 to donate cab rides to the Asian community. There is so much more work to be done. We really need to come together and tackle this issue as a community. Support the Asian community. Learn how at lovehasnolabels.com. Brought to you by Love Has No Labels and the Ad Council. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. It is 2024, and we're going to get through this together, folks. My campaign promise to all of you here on Next Question is going to be a good time the whole time, we hope. I have some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring Kris Jenner, who's got some words of wisdom for me on being a good grandmother, or in her case, a good lovey. You know, you start thinking of what you want your grandmother name to be. Like, are they going to call me grandma like I called my grandmother? So I got to choose my name, which is now Lovey. I'll also be joined by Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, to name a few. So come on in and take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. I loved it. Your energy and joy. I'm squeezing every minute I can for you out of this season of Next Question. Last question, I promise. You have to go. I have to go. (laughs) But it's been so fun. And I can't wait for you to hear it. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everyone. This is Molly and Matt, and we're the hosts of Grown Up Stuff How to Adult, a podcast from Ruby Studio and iHeart Podcasts. It's a show dedicated to helping you figure out the trickiest parts of adulting. Like how to start planning for retirement, creating a healthy skincare routine, understanding when and how much to tip someone, and so much more. Here's a clip from an upcoming episode featuring the weekly home checks, Keyshawn Lane, that you won't want to miss. A common mistake that a lot of people do, they use fabric softener when it's not so great for your clothes. Should we never be using fabric softener? No, you should not ever be using oh. fabric softener. Oh. It leaves a deposit on our clothes, which is also left in the machine. And it also makes the clothes highly flammable. Wait, what? <laughs> yes. What you want to do instead is just use a quarter cup of vinegar. And that'll make them softer? That'll make them softer. And if you wanted some kind of scent, you can use essential oils. Wow, wow, wow. Catch new episodes of Grown Up Stuff How to Adult every other Tuesday on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Grown Up Stuff. It's the Breakfast Club, the world's most dangerous morning show. Hey! Angela E is kind of like the big sister that always pokes you in the forehead. That's not how it goes? That's not how anything goes. Yimby's really like a robot. One of the best DJs ever. Believe that. Charlamagne is the wild card. And I'm about to give somebody the credit they deserve for being stupid. I know that's right. <laughs> what is wrong with you? <laughs> Listen to The Breakfast Club weekday mornings from 6 to 10 on 106.7 The Beat. Columbus is real hip-hop and R&B. So, Kirsten, you know, one thing among the people who are sort of casually using um, Kratom now, buying it in the shops, using it like CBD or coffee or whatever, and the people who are using it to deal with chronic pain um, or, or with addiction, are, are there major differences? Are, are, the, are the latter group taking it at much higher doses or with greater frequency? Or how much variability is, is there in that? So, one key point to keep in mind is that many, I would say nearly all people that are using Kratom are reporting, at least that we've looked at in our sample, reporting more than one use motivation, right? So there's a lot of overlap between having a drug addiction or having a prescription opioid dependence and then chronic pain and then depression, anxiety. So when people are given a list of, you know, to check off all of the motivations for use, they're checking off many, many motivations. And so we can't cleanly separate people of like only for this, only for that, because usually it's they're using it for multiple reasons. So that said, what I can say is that on average, 
people who regularly use are using two to four times a day. So let's say three times a day, they're dosing three times a day on average. And the amount, um, it, it varies, of course, because you can measure it in cups of tea, you can measure it in grams or spoonfuls or tablespoons. Um, but the, the ranges aren't super wide. And we've looked at you know higher doses and lower doses that can achieve effects and doses that are too much and doses that are ineffectual and things like that. And the range is not dramatic, but typically people who use regularly are using two to three times a day, sometimes four times a day daily. And how they're taking it, it depends on the person, but the route of administration is always oral. You cannot inject Kratom. You can't snort it. So it's always going to be an oral route of administration. But we do have people who report using you know, 13 times a day. And you have people reporting using like clockwork only three days a week, only before work, because they have to stand on their feet at work all day. So it depends kind of on the person's situation. But I would say that the recreational users, there's a lot more variability and, you know, you know, infrequency of use versus the people who are using it as a self-treatment, that's going to be more like regimented. And as of right now, Kratom withdrawal symptoms tend to be very similar to opioid withdrawal symptoms. That said, many withdrawal symptoms are going to be very similar across drugs, right? So if you're if you're withdrawing from benzos or alcohol or cocaine or I mean, you're going to feel irritable, right? Like it doesn't matter what drug it is, you're going to be a little irritable. But other symptoms are more characteristics of opioid withdrawal. But again, it depends on the symptom, it depends on the dose. So we do have a very crude signal of dose-dependent withdrawal effects, meaning if you're taking higher doses more often over a longer period of time, then chances are you're going to experience more intense withdrawal symptoms than if you're taking less kratom intermittently for a shorter period of time. That's, that's the signal we have. Oh, by the way, how are you feeling? How's that kratom treating you? Uh, you know, I just took another sip. Uh, you may have heard the ice cube there. I'm not yes. enjoying the taste of it, I'll tell you that. And I don't know that I'm feeling any effect from it as yet, but then again, I'm very focused on our conversation. So uh, we'll see what happens afterward. Okay. Yeah. Well, if I were to sum up what I'm, what I'm hearing from you and also what I've been reading, it sounds like there's maybe, one, uh, crudely, one could break it into two camps. And there's people dealing with really serious issues around pain, addiction, depression, and those who are dealing with lower levels of, you know, maybe anxiety or, or uh, you know, energy focus, what have you. And that maybe the market for the latter group is big and growing bigger very rapidly because of the rapid expansion of, you know, Kratom's reputation in these stores. And that within all of that, right, I mean, if, that's, if there's that spectrum of use, people are reporting a lot of positive stuff. And at the same time, people are talking about having sometimes negative consequences, right? Having a hard time stopping using it, although maybe not so hard as stopping opioids, people feeling nauseous, people getting sick, people, you know, having other sorts of weird physical reactions that may or may not be connected to the kratom they were using. It might be connected to other drugs they were using or some other health condition, um, but that it's a very complicated sort of portrait of what's going on out there with only a small amount of information where a lot of what's emerging is suggesting really interesting and promising potential and possibilities um, in terms of self-treatment for depression, addiction, what have you, uh, and that those appear to be greater than the negative side, if you look at this more from a, lar a large, you know, large lens. Yes? No? Did yeah. I, did I do it justice? You know, I believe we should listen to people take what they say mostly on faith unless we have some reason not to and believe, you know, and I would say that a lot of drug research and addiction research, the validity of self-report is actually quite good. You know, and we should keep in mind that these large online surveys are self-selected too. So to sit down and take an hour, hour and a half long online survey that is unpaid, you have to either have a really favorable attitude or a really unfavorable attitude to want to do that. And so um, and, and the fact that what we've seen from the large online surveys tends towards the the more positive beneficial effects from Kratom as opposed to, you know, adverse effects, then people might say, and, and I've said, you know, we need to be cautious with, you know, how much, you know, you know, 
what we really think we know about this, given that we, we have a possible self-selection bias. So one thing that we did with our small recontact survey, and I'll say the sample size is small, but we identified people who had ever used Kratom in their lifetime on a completely unrelated survey. And we recontacted a portion of them. And you know we had a small window of time to do this. And we asked a very comprehensive, they were compensated for their time, but they were not all current regular Kratom users, meaning that we had people who had used Kratom and quit. We had people who had maybe used a few times. Uh, we had people who were regular users and still were regular users. And so we had a, a smaller, but a much more diverse sample. And with those data, what we've seen it kind of maps onto what you said. And we saw what Al Garcia Romeo found in his larger online survey, which were really low rates of meeting diagnostic criteria threshold for a creative use disorder. And that we found a larger proportion than he did, but it was still not a majority and it was mostly mild and moderate. Now, that's all fine and well, but the real meat of it is when you look at specific symptoms that clinicians use to diagnose a substance use disorder. And if anyone wants to go online and look these up, I think it is helpful because you see that there's many different facets that are used in coming to this diagnosis. And I was not surprised to see that looking at individual symptoms, tolerance and withdrawal symptoms were, were well represented and they were the most widely endorsed. However, impairments in psychosocial functioning were not prevalent, where they're not the majority of people, right? And for a person who is a trained clinician, that is significant to me because when I think about um, helping people or what we need to do um, to get, you know, to intervene if a person's relationship with drugs becomes problematic, it's that psychosocial impairment that is is kind of key. Like, are they are they putting their kids in the closet and neglecting to go to work and, you know, pawning their grandmother's TV to go get Kratom? And that's not what we're seeing here. So it's a different animal than some other drugs, especially given that a majority of the sample had at one point used Kratom regularly, meaning it's not like the everyone had just tried it once. The other way we assessed this was by asking people, okay, we've established that you get acute effects from your dose, you know, most of the time. I mean, we asked all these questions about effect and duration of effects. And because one thing David Epstein, my mentor, wanted to know is, does Kratom for people who take it regularly enough? Does it act like an antidepressant over time where you can take it every day and not feel a psychoactive effect? Or do you achieve a psychoactive effect every time? And I told him it was definitely the latter. And he was like, all right, let's find out. And, and it was. Most people felt an acute effect of their use, of their dose when they took it, even if they had been dosing for a long period of time. And we asked them, okay, so you feel an effect, you, you're taking this regularly, are these effects helpful in meeting your daily obligations? And are they in keeping with your, you know, meeting your daily obligations? Are they a hindrance? All, you know, we asked, they had many response options. And the two most, you know, highly endorsed options were, yes, Kratom is both helpful to meeting my daily effects and it's in keeping with my daily obligations, right? It's not impairing my daily obligations or my ability to meet them. And for those people who said that it was helpful in meeting their daily obligations, that's like a cup of coffee, right? Like when I drink my coffee in the morning, it is like me, I'm taking a psychoactive drug. It's not only, you know, not impairing my daily obligations, it's helping me meet my, my roles and responsibilities because I do better work when I've had my coffee. The second almost equally endorsed option was, you know, it doesn't help me meet my daily obligations, but it is in keeping with them, right? It's not impairing them in any way. And to me, that's more like a glass of wine. So like when I drink my glass of wine at night, you know, it's not hurting my ability to function and fulfill my daily roles and obligations, but I'm also not saying that it's, you know, helping me fulfill them either. It's just the, the thing I do that I unwind with. Kratom is very complex pharmacologically, so I'm not trying to say we should consider Kratom to be like a cup of coffee or like a glass of wine, but as far as drug set and setting and how people use drugs and all of these, you know, or psychoactive substances, we are seeing it, at least a signal. And again, more work absolutely must be done, but we are seeing a signal based on self-report that this is more of a substance or a product that is in keeping with people's daily lives than a hindrance to it. Again, on the whole, 
Let me jump here into the the politics of this thing, because I, I don't know if I've told you this, but, you know, I had barely been paying attention to Kratom while I was running Drug Policy Alliance. And then something happened in 2016, which was the DEA announced that there were these problems with Kratom and that they wanted to zap it into Schedule 1 and do it quite precipitously. The fact of the DEA just kind of abusing its legal administrative powers to basically prohibit something that was properly used was offensive to our core principles. So we put out an alert to our 250,000 email members, the way we some do around marijuana legislation or opioid issues or, you know, you name it, the whole range of things that DPA was dealing with. And I and my colleagues were stunned, Kirsten. I mean, we got a response. Like, we we thought, like, people would barely notice this. Who's paying attention on our list to Kratom? In fact, we got more responses to that email blast than almost any other email blast we had ever done. Maybe one or two on marijuana, one, one on the Rave Act and MDMA 20 years ago. I mean, huge numbers coming in and people outraged about the DEA and people reporting their personal stories about, hey, you know, I'd still be, I'd be, a de- I'd be dead from fentanyl now. I'd be addicted. But, but you know, the Kratom saved my life or I was dealing with this or pain or my doctor wanted me on, you know, OxyContin, but this stuff worked better. I mean, one after another after another. And so what that resulted in it is, you know, all of a sudden I'm in connection with the American Kratom Association and interacting with them. And we're reaching out to legislators and sending out other alerts. And, you know, my understanding is that when the DA tried to do that, what happened was they failed. Right. That I think 50,000 or more people wrote to uh, DEA and members of Congress stepped up and said, cut this out. And leading researchers said this makes no sense. And so they backed off. And then the next thing I see is it looks like the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, now seems to be on some campaign to try to put it in Schedule 1 or ban it. And and so I'm trying to understand why. I mean, they're putting out these reports claiming that there were 40 Kratom-related deaths, but when you sift through the data, it appears that not a single one or maybe one or two involved Kratom alone and almost no strong evidence about causal relationship between using Kratom and dying. So you see this bullshit coming out of, you know, the the organizations like DEA and, and FDA. And what I'm trying to understand is that just same old drug war redux, drug war, you know, bullshit. What exactly is going on and what insight can you provide into this sort of stuff, especially now that you're working for the National Institute of Drug Abuse and you're part of the bigger drug control establishment? Oh, man, I never thought that someone would say I'm part of the big drug control establishment. I'm going to have to get a T-shirt made. Um, That is hilarious. So although I do try to stay on top of policy and what's going on with Kratom in different states, you know, I don't get involved with that because it's not really my job and there are better people equipped to do it anyway. So I am low, 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 low on the totem pole of of the hierarchy of the of NIDA, of, of the federal government. So DEA cannot make a, or should not, at least historically, I should say, it has not been the case that DEA does something hasty, like schedule a substance that is a new substance without sufficient scientific evidence, right? And, and what Say that again? You're saying DEA does not typically do that, has no real history of doing that? Is not supposed to do that. No, no. We know what we know is not supposed to. But if you look at their history, it seems to me one that's oftentimes been fundamentally anti-scientific. I mean, I think they're, they're getting their act together a little bit better these days now that cannabis is being legalized and psychedelics is getting so much positive press around the research. But I mean, I just saw them as essentially a Neanderthal agency when it came to some of these policy issues and a whole range of things they were dealing with. But I'm very concerned about that. I looked at, I think I think it was on the NIDA website, the fact page about Kratom, you know, it did not seem to reflect the kind of broad survey data and what's more broadly known. It seemed to be, you know, as they did with marijuana, all about the negative, 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 without talking about any of the positive things that people are reporting. So, you know, I've seen this kind of drug war mentality permeating, not just the law enforcement agencies, but also sometimes FDA, sometimes NIDA, um, you know, and I, you know, with Kratom, where it's got this interesting potential to really be helping people struggling with addiction, struggling with pain, struggling with depression, it seems like there was a kind of knee jerk impulse to do, you know, the opposite. My takeaway from talking with you, Kirsten, and also with the reading I've been doing in anticipation of talking with you, is that, you know, this country and maybe the world more broadly would be better off if 
Kratom does not get banned, and if the FDA begins to effectively regulate it the way it does sort of food supplements or other sorts of things, so that way they can keep track of adulterated products, you know, they can recall things, they can put out notices, they can ban certain things which aren't what they are being marketed to be, but that what we really need here is truth in labeling, truth in advertising, going back to what the original Food and Drug Act was all about back in the early part of the 20th century, and all that, although there are certain risks associated with that approach, the benefits of that, given the potential of Kratom in helping people struggling with all sorts of medical conditions, you know, that, that, that the benefit is going to significantly exceed the cost if we can implement a sensible regulatory policy. Would you basically agree with that? I think we as scientists have so much work ahead of us that in this uncanny valley where we have enough information, we have enough data, enough self-report data, enough case reports. We, we have enough information to say, okay, let's hold on here and let's just not make a large sweeping policy decision that is not scientifically informed and that has very wide ranging public health implications if people who are using Kratom daily all of a sudden cannot take their Kratom and they are left with what you described earlier as a black market. So given that we don't know the full breadth of the public health implications of what would happen if Kratom was prohibited tomorrow, um, I could say we can speculate, like I have already done on, on the show earlier, about what might happen for some people. And to that end, you know, I can, I can only say that if, you know, if I were emperor of the world and could do whatever, I would I would probably have a whole lot of other systems in place to try to get science to inform policy better than it does. But I can't speak to any specific policy prescription right now, other than that we desperately, desperately need more data. We need more science. Right. Kirsten, well, uh, I mean, I'll say this to your response, okay? Uh, maybe I'm a little frustrated because it does feel like a hyper-cautious way of essentially saying sort of, yes, you agree. Because ultimately, policy does happen. People make decisions. DEA, FDA does things. Legislators do things. People, researchers like yourself, actually do need to be active. The level of passivity in the drug research world for decades, the extent to which drug research just kept doing their thing and doing their research and following politically driven and research agendas while a drug war got launched that arrested tens of millions of people, incarcerated millions of people. I actually think there is a sort of moral and professional obligation for researchers to really be stepping out and to be a little clearer about this. You know, I tell you, before I stopped running Drug Policy Alliance, we launched a program that's under the leadership of Jules Netherland, you know, an office of academic engagement. And it had two objectives. One was to ensure that the drug policy reform agenda of DPA and the broader reform world was firmly grounded in research, right? And the second was to uh, basically empower researchers to get more involved in advocacy. Because what happens is researchers is oftentimes adopt a position of we don't have enough research, we don't have enough evidence, a real position of kind of passivity in the face of politicians and others, you know, making terrible decisions that harm people in all sorts of ways. And when you have agencies whose default is to put something in Schedule 1 and prohibit it, you know, rather than to say, let's try regulating this first and as responsible as we can, and then as the evidence comes in, we'll deal with that. I really think it's important to be pretty clear about this sort of thing. You know, it's not just about what the evidence is in front of you. It's also about values. It's about core values, about what kind of society we're going to live in. And so when somebody's out there saying prohibit, 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 or FDA is doing this thing, you know, people, including people working for the government as public servants doing drug abuse research, need to be able and willing to step up and say, that's not right. Sorry to give you that rant there, but um, I just felt like I needed to do that. <laughs> the kratom's kicking in. You're getting. You're getting. Oh, that must be <laughs> a good point. Maybe no, I'm that's the impact no, of no, kratom. no. Uh -huh. I, I know. I appreciate that. There's there's this optimistic part of me that thinks, okay, we have advocates taking the science that we're producing. The AKA is using it along with AKA being American Kratom Association, yes, right? Yes, yeah. and working at the state level to you know implement to over either overturn bans on, or prohibitions on kratom but also to introduce some sort of regulatory um you know consumer protection act kind of um you know legislation 
And I'm, yeah, I'm very thankful that that work is being done and that the work that we're doing um, at universities at NIDA can help inform that along with all of the stories of the people using Kratom. And I do think that, you know, NIDA in particular is, you, you alluded to some improvements um, earlier. You know, they are actively working to revitalize their Kratom webpage to make it up to date and to make it more informative and in keeping with the science and to have an outward facing you know, set of facts to the extent that we have them that is more fleshed out and is more detailed than it currently is. So that is actively underway. I know that much. And I know that NIDA is invested in understanding Kratom better. So there is a, an appetite to understand this. And in the interim, I don't think anyone um, would, I would hope not, shy away from this kind of common sense you know, regulation. Let's take a moment to breathe. Deep inhale. Extend your spine. Remain focused on what you're doing. If safe to do so, exhale slowly, leaning to one side. Inhale back to center. If safe to do so, exhale slowly to the opposite side. Find mental health resources at loveyourmindtoday.org. This message is brought to you by the Huntsman Mental Health Institute and the Ed Council. Welcome to season nine of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. It is 2024, and we're going to get through this together, folks. My campaign promise to all of you here on Next Question is going to be a good time the whole time, we hope. I have some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring Kris Jenner, who's got some words of wisdom for me on being a good grandmother, or in her case, a good lovey. You know, you start thinking of what you want your grandmother name to be. Like, are they going to call me grandma like I called my grandmother? So I got to choose my name, which is now Lovey. I'll also be joined by Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, to name a few. So come on in and take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. I loved it. Your energy and joy. I'm squeezing every minute I can for you out of this season of Next Question. Last question, I promise. You have to go. I have to go. <laughs> but it's been so fun. And I can't wait for you to hear it. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everyone. This is Molly and Matt, and we're the hosts of Grown Up Stuff How to Adult, a podcast from Ruby Studio and iHeart Podcasts. It's a show dedicated to helping you figure out the trickiest parts of adulting. Like how to start planning for retirement, creating a healthy skincare routine, understanding when and how much to tip someone, and so much more. Here's a clip from an upcoming episode featuring the weekly home checks, Keyshawn Lane, that you won't want to miss. A common mistake that a lot of people do, they use fabric softener when it's not so great for your clothes. Should we never be using fabric softener? No, you should not ever be using oh. fabric softener. Oh. It leaves a deposit on our clothes, which is also left in the machine. And it also makes the clothes highly flammable. Wait, what? <laughs> yes. What you want to do instead is just use a quarter cup of vinegar. And that'll make them softer? That'll make them softer. And if you wanted some kind of scent, you can use essential oils. Wow, wow, wow. Catch new episodes of Grown Up Stuff How to Adult every other Tuesday on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Grown up stuff. Hey, it's Zuko and Kayla from The Wake Up Call. Enjoy your podcast, but when you're done, don't forget about us. We have a radio show. We try to bring a smile to your face every morning. We also talk to some of the hottest country stars of today, and we like to share some good news with That's What I Like. Because Lord knows that's hard to find. When you're done podcasting your podcast, listen to us at 92.3 WCOL. Set your preset on your radio right now, and don't forget you can listen to us online on the iHeartRadio app. So, Chris, just a few last questions. One is, you know, I've heard about Kratom being used with various addictions and with pain. 
um, but especially with respect to opioid dependence. And and I've seen it, you know, the, some of the academic articles saying that basically there are elements of kratom that make it like an opioid. And in some respects, it's like an opioid agonist, like methadone or buprenorphine. In some respects, it's like an antagonist, like uh, I guess naloxone. In some respects, it's like a partial agonist, you know, that, but that it, it operates on some of the opioid receptors. And that's what makes it oftentimes helpful for people in trying to get off of opioids to reduce withdrawal symptoms, to stay off of it, to use it as a substitute, as something instead of maybe methadone or buprenorphine. But what can you basically tell me about the relationship or the opioid-like nature of Kratom? The, the short answer is that at least four alkaloids act as partial agonists at mu receptors, right? And those are the receptors that are responsible for analgesia and, you know, like the pain-killing effects, also some anxiolytic effects. But also what we're seeing is that they seem to be partial agonists, right? Which means that there is a ceiling as to how much they're going to be able to activate, um, you know, that receptor and produce an effect. And so there's what's called a biased opioid agonist. And that term is highly, hotly debated right now in terms of the mechanisms of action for bias agonism. Some people think there's a second messenger pathway, the beta arrestin, that doesn't get activated. And, and that's what is often associated with respiratory depression, GI upset, things like that. Um, however, there's new literature to suggest, and again, this is hotly debated, and it's never, kind of another but related conversation. There's a bias within the selectivity of the proteins before these pathways. Long story short, some people, and even I've put into papers, um, you know, these alkaloids, metrogenine seems to act as a partial bias agonist. Well, I'm kind of walking that bias part back now until we know more. But we do know that, I mean, you know, it it does act like, I would say it's closer to buprenorphine than methadone. And just explain to our audience, many of whom won't know the difference between those two, because they're both being used for people who are struggling with addiction to heroin or other, you know, illicit opioids. Um, and methadone can only be obtained for most people for addiction treatment in a clinic, um, many of which are very hard to access in parts around the United States, whereas buprenorphine is something that can be prescribed by physicians. So it's much more easily accessible. So when you say that maybe Kratom is a little more like buprenorphine than it is like methadone, what exactly do you mean without getting too technical? Methadone is what's called a full agonist, meaning that you can increase the dose really, 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 really high. And you can keep increasing that dose until you die, basically. So there, there's, um, you know, there's going to be more effect with the more um, you take of it. And with buprenorphine, there's a ceiling effect, meaning, and it's a partial agonist. You know, people thought less of a potential for abuse or misuse. And, you know, that may or may not be true. That's a different conversation. But I think the main thing to keep in mind is that whatever Kratom is doing, there are non-opioid mechanisms of action, right? So even if we just wanted to call Kratom an opioid, which I'm not ready to call it an opioid point blank, but the psychoactive substance, this plant has action at opioid receptors, but it has action at these other receptors as well. And again, going back to that symphony analogy or metaphor that Chris has, you know, we don't know what they're all doing in combination. It could be that one is attenuating the activity of another or potentiating the activity of another. And, you know, we don't know what people are using Kratom in conjunction with. But more importantly, if someone is trying to get off opioids and they think that, you know, Kratom is helpful, well, Kratom might be helpful because of its opioid-like properties. But you hear people withdrawing using benzos and using alcohol. So it isn't necessarily the case. And often, I, I would say even the bigger, bigger point is that many people who are using opioids are, are polysubstance users, right? They're using many drugs. If they're trying to get off many drugs, well, it could be that the omnibus effects of Kratom are, I just feel better when I take Kratom. And we don't know if it's the action at, at opioid, like at mu receptors that is doing the heavy lifting. Likely that's part of the story. But it could be that it's a lot of different things pharmacologically that are making the person feel better. Even stimulants can make a person feel better. So it doesn't have to be a one-to-one -one opioid replacement or opioid substitution. But what we're seeing is that some people are using it for opioid substitution. But we're also seeing some of that with amphetamine and alcohol. 
And so the question I want to ask you about Kratom, and this is my last question, is in your gut, jump forward 10, 15 years, do you think that Kratom has a, a potential to play a really important role in this country and elsewhere in dealing with problems like opioid addiction, other drug dependence, pain, and maybe some other conditions? Or do you remain very skeptical it really can play a big role in the future? Oh, well, I don't even have to use my gut on this one. All of the work that I've done, all of what I've seen firsthand, you know, I'm staking my career on this. I love to research traditional opioids, opioid use disorder treatment. If I didn't think Kratom was going to be relevant, and when I say I mean relevant on many different levels, both Kratom products proliferating in real world settings, but also more sophisticated understandings of the mechanisms of actions and how that can be leveraged into some therapeutics and both concurrently is such that there's like a medicinal Kratom similar to cannabis situation going on. You know, if I didn't think Kratom was going to be relevant, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you. And again, you know, it's not even my gut. If I thought it was not helping people, I would be working on something else. But I will say, you know, it takes a really, really long time to take any, uh, you know, alkaloid or, you know, molecule and get this particular set of molecules into a format that can be delivered to humans in certain trials and then tested and brought to market. So, you know, the the distant future is the distant future. And I think that, you know, to the point about policy, if Kratom is scheduled, it's going to make our job a lot harder and as researchers to do our work. Kirsten, I am really grateful for your taking the time to be on Psychoactive with me. I really wish you more success as your career moves on, and I hope you're going to become an outstanding researcher and scientist about Kratom and other substances and bring your life experience to bear on all of that. So thank you ever so much for joining me on this program. Absolutely. And I would only ask one last question. How are you feeling with your Kratom tea? Well, you know, I think that, you know, maybe I've been very animated on this episode. So maybe it's like Kratom <laughs> that maybe, maybe that way. I don't know. You know, when I, I went, don't know if that's true. <laughs> when I went to the shop, you know, they were distinguished between the red Kratoms and the green Kratoms. And the red was more sedating yeah, they said, and the greens. And I don't know, maybe it's the same kind of bullshit. Like you would hear like, is Indica and Sativa really yeah. that different or not? Right. Um, but I, and this liquid one I drank, they don't even tell you whether it's red or green. All I know is I'm feeling pretty good. You should try an extract. I'm not prescribing that. I'm not endorsing Kratom use, but I'm just saying that that's not clinical advice. That is not, I do not speak for anybody but myself. I appreciate the non-professional advice. Thank you so, (laughs) thank you so very, very much. No, thank you for the opportunity. It was lovely. We love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your own stories, comments, and ideas, then leave us a message at 1-833-779- 2460. That's 833-PSYCHO-ZERO. Or you can email us at psychoactive at protozoa.com or find me on Twitter at Ethan Nadelman. You can also find contact information in our show notes. Psychoactive is a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. It's hosted by me, Ethan Nadelman. It's produced by Noam Osband and Josh Thane. The executive producers are Dylan Golden, Ari Handel, Elizabeth Giesis, and Darren Aronofsky from Protozoa Pictures, Alex Williams and Matt Frederick from iHeartRadio, and me, Ethan Adelman. Our music is by Ari Belusian, and a special thanks to Avivit Bar-Yosef, Bianca Grimshaw, and Robert Beebe. Next week, I'll talk with Dr. Gita Vade, one of the world's leading psychotherapists working with the drug ketamine. I feel like ketamine is a beautiful medicine, and I think it has a lot of advantages. I really feel psychedelic psychotherapy allows one to almost find the door out of our prison, which are our patterns, our characters, our conditioning, and to have new possibilities and an emergence into the full aspects of who we are, not based on our survival-based strategies from childhood in the environments we grew in. So I really feel it is a process of liberation and growth and new possibilities.
Subscribe to Psychoactive now so you don't miss it. Check the back seat. Check the back seat. Check the back seat. Gets in your head, right? Good. Because every year, dozens of children are forgotten in the backseat of a car by a parent or caregiver. All never thought it could happen to them. But with changes in routines, distractions, or a sleeping child, it can happen to anyone. Parked cars get hot fast and can be deadly. So get it in your head. Check the backseat. A message from NHTSA and the Ad Council. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast hosts Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everyone, this is Molly and Matt, and we're the hosts of Grown Up Stuff How to Adult, a podcast from Ruby Studio and iHeart Podcasts. It's a show dedicated to helping you figure out the trickiest parts of adulting. Like how to start planning for retirement, creating a healthy skincare routine, understanding when and how much to tip someone, and so much more. Let's learn about all of it and then some. Listen to Grown Up Stuff How to Adult on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search Grown Up Stuff. Grown Up Stuff.